Hello, Guitar Smarts listeners. This is an important announcement. Please don't skip ahead. We start this podcast with a special message. Way back in 2021, Guitar Smarts had the pleasure of interviewing the utterly fantastic Matt Long. Matt is a multiple award-winning British blues guitarist and lead singer of the British blues band Catfish and hard rock outfit The Revenant Ones. He joined us for episode number 20 and was a truly gracious guest who spoke about his career, his childhood, guitars and meetings his hero, Joe Bonamassa. Well, Matt needs your help. Through 2023, Matt has been undergoing treatment for bowel cancer, and his recent prognosis has meant that to extend his life and retain a chance of survival, he needs to seek private treatment outside of the NHS. Matt's family have set up a GoFundMe page that is linked in the Guitar Smarts link tree in the description of this podcast. And we at the Guitar Smarts podcast would like to invite each and every listener to consider donating towards this fund that could well save the life of one of the brightest guitar talents of our generation. Now is the time, folks. Head on over to the link in the description to find the GoFundMe page. Donate what you can. Your donation could save a life. Thank you. Enjoy the podcast. I remember again, I was terrified and he said, you, you've got to talk to them. And I was like, well, say what? And he said, just, just talk to them. Talk to them about the song. Talk to them about your day. Just talk to them. So you've got him to blame for me now not being able to shut up and, and you guys occasionally telling me, Andy, Andy, get on with it. Next song, next song. Greetings. Welcome to episode number eight of the Guitar Smarts podcast. Thank you so much for joining us again. This week, Kieran and I are discussing what we have learned over the years about the successful ways you can run a band. We were both guitarists in a blues band called Roadrunner Blues, and as far as pub and function bands go, we were pretty good, pretty successful, and we had a consistent lineup for many years. We were great performers and a very professional act. Now, most of our success was down to the hard work and leadership of the front man and band leader, Andy Rudd who just so happens to be our guest on today's podcast. It was great to catch up with Andy and reminisce on our time in Roadrunner together and to pick his brain about his life starting out as a singer and becoming a front man and a band leader. As always, come and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash guitar smarts and follow us on Instagram using the handle at guitar underscore smarts. Finally, wherever you listen to your podcast, remember to please click subscribe or follow so you don't miss another great show like this one. Anyway, Guitar Smarts listeners, please welcome Mr. Andy Rudd. Andrew Rudd, thank you very much for joining us. Are you, are you okay? I'm good, thanks. Are you well? Good. Fantastic. Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Because we're, we're having a bit of a conversation now about what it means to lead a band, not just run a band, but to be a band leader and to be a band frontman and all the things that are important in running a band. Um, and we thought we'd speak to you because Kieran and I spent a long time being in a band with you. And tell us a bit about yourself. Tell us about your history as a singer and a frontman running a band. How long have you done it for? So uh, the, the band, I guess, uh, the original Roadrunner was started off uh, like many 17-year-olds who love music, just wanted to make a lot of noise and uh, be famous. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know... I put a local ad in the Kingfisher Music in Fleet, um, looking for a, a band. And like any typical 17-year-old back then, um, what, well, I'm 42 now, so fair, fair way back. Um, I think the ad was along the lines of um, guitarist, bassist, drummer wanted for Oasis, Hendrix, Clapton-style band. <laughs> uh, so so all, all genres. Yeah, um, <laughs> pulled those out of a bag. Yeah. Um, that was just on your iTunes list at the time. Well, it wouldn't have been iTunes back then, would it? It would have been like your mixtape or your CD CD player. It was it was the typical typical thing that everyone was doing. Um, put it in, and within um, a few weeks, the uh, had a f- load of people um, get in touch, and we were we were rehearsing in Hook Scout Hut, um, which I managed to. Uh, to get for free or the acoustics were absolutely awful just imagine booming everything you played just boomed around the room um but we had a uh, i don't know a bassist 
called Bob Francis, who um, I, I can't remember how old. I remember thinking at the time he was very old, but he was probably my age now. Um, so he was probably in his forties. <laughs> and then a guy called um, I think it was one of the one of the Payne brothers, the two of them. Dan, he, he was playing guitar, and then we had a we had a drummer as well. Um, oh, I can't remember drummer. Drummer was an old old guy as well. He was into his rock bands. And uh, anyway, we had a blast. It was good fun. It sounded terrible, I'm sure, if we'd recorded it. And after the rehearsal, Bob took me aside. He was in a couple of other bands and he, he gave me a cassette tape uh, and it was, um, it was Dr. Feelgood. And he said to me, look, I don't, you know, I know this is your band, um, but I just, just wondered whether, you know, you want to give this a listen. This is some really good good music um and at the time really i was aware of blues music and but not never heard of dr feelgood wasn't really tuned into that kind of uh, genre and uh, he said you know there's a lot of bands out there that are doing what what you want to do so clapton oasis hendrix he said why don't we be a bit different and he said have a listen let me let me know what you think and and that's kind of how it all started listen to the tape absolutely loved it and the uh, supersonic live forever set list <laughs> that had been hastily put together for the next practice, completely evolved and, and turned into some great classics, sort of blues stuff, but also numbers that you wouldn't normally hear. It was you know, George and the Satellites. It's just the, the blues band. Um, and that's, that's how it all started. Uh, 17, little ad in the, in the, in the local shop. And, um, uh, you know, God, so many lineups later, I think we we're, we're, we were down with the longest running lineup, the last lineup when we when the band folded, you, Kieran, me. Yeah, it was a long run, wasn't it? I mean, I joined in 2007, October 2007, or maybe just slightly later than that, maybe... Yeah, it would have been. It would have been the end of two thousand and seven, which wasn't long after. Um, I guess the other guys joined as well, right? I mean, that was Ken Bannister, Terry Hotston, and then Kieran. You came along probably a year or so after that, I think, didn't you? Two thousand and nine, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's about two thousand and nine. You guys yeah. have been going with that lineup for a couple of years by then, yeah. Yeah, those were the days. So brilliant. So, you, so that, see, this is good because you ran a band for a long time, but it wasn't. You ran a you know, like a, a non-professional pub and club and corporate event band. You know, Roadrunner grew from something that you'd started as a, as a school lever kind of age into a pretty professional outfit after some time. And that there's reasons for that success. And I guess that's what we want to explore today is what things you learned, what, what you can impart on other people who are maybe in that same area of their journey, starting a band and rehearsing a band, and things that they can do to be successful like you were running a, running a band. And we've made some notes, so we've got kind of a list of various things, things that I've learned from you as well and watching you run a band that I think are important to impart onto other people. I think there's 10, 10 things, 10 things that somebody needs to consider, right, when they're starting a band. And the first thing is, is exactly what you just talked about though. You were, you were defining what the band was, weren't you, at the start? You were saying Oasis, Clapton, Hendrix covers. Can you imagine an Oasis, Clapton, Hendrix song? What would that have been, what would that even been like? So that, defining it, that's important, isn't it? So you had the wisdom of somebody older in your band to help kind of guide you in that. When was the point when you saw that as being um, a beneficial thing to do? When did you realise that being a bit different or at least being something that was more defined to the audience, when did that seem to make more sense to you? Did you gig and with the new set list and you realised that it was better or...? I think at the start, I wasn't really sold on it. I, in my mind, I just wanted to play Oasis. I loved Oasis and I wanted to, that was the key thing. And I, I'll be honest, I think I put Clapton Hendrix in there just because that's what everyone else was doing. And is, it, is that because you wanted everyone... to find a good guitarist, right? So you wanted to... But um, Bob taught me a lot as a, as a youngster, you know, as a youngster, he was, he really sort of passed down his experience um, in the bands and eventually as you know there was some songs he suggested which i remember knocking going there's no way we're playing that and i'm singing that you know i can't stand the song i had to like the song i had to really get it so i think he was very patient and worked with me on finding the right stuff that i liked and was willing to take forward and then when we gigged i, th I think people well, just people were dancing having a good time and we were getting landlords saying to us we like you you're a bit different to the usual covers bands we're getting. 
And I remember early on that kind of resonated with me and stayed with me. And I think all the way through then, all the various lineups we've had, and it was very strong, I think. And you've, we all played a part in that. You, Kieran, Terry, Ken, when it came to um, new material, we really looked at what we were doing and what, you know, not just doing another number that everyone does. And not only we, we took that genre, we took that, that to the next level, I think, with our lineup, which is when we started taking those songs and turning them into Roadrunner style covers where you wouldn't hear another, if another band did pick it, you wouldn't hear that version because it was ours. And we we turned some songs, I mean, Purple Rain, I mean, that is, I think, personally, one of my favourite Roadrunner-style um, songs. And we were, we were not re- renowned for it, weren't we? Yeah, absolutely. That was That's a good point, actually. So we really did put our own personality into the performance and into the songs. And that, I think, came out of not just because we knew that was something that we wanted to do anyway, to put our own spin on things, but I think you have to let that happen naturally as well. You know, if you all let your personality come out in your performance, then that happens to the songs anyway, right? I think the thing that that you've said that I think is really, really important for somebody starting out is this ability to listen to people that are a bit more seasoned and that have gigged a bit more and got a bit more experience. So for you as a 17-year-old kid to be able to take on that feedback or that advice from somebody else who had been out there already, had been in some bands, had been gigging, and, and to keep an open mind about that. I mean, one of the one of the things that I learned fairly early on, and I'm, I'm sure most people do, is that there's no better way to get, uh, you know, improve your musicianship than playing in a band. But also then to learn about things like band etiquette, what it takes to, you know, get a band up and running and surviving for as long as you manage to make a band work for, Andy, which was, you know, went on for decades, right? Um, by the time I joined it, it was in a place where it had its own identity and any song that we decided to do would automatically become our own in our own style because it was a a bunch of very seasoned semi kind of professional musicians by that point. But I think that's a really insightful thing that you've kind of talked about is at an early stage when you're setting up a band and particularly if you're younger and you haven't been in many bands, is to keep that open mind and listen and learn from those that, that have done this before because there is definitely some wisdom that comes from knowing how to put together a set list, knowing what um, your audience will kind of want to, to listen to, and also knowing, you know, how to create that band identity and define that band so it becomes something that, you know, people want to come and listen to because it is different and it's doing something different. And more importantly, that people will want to book because it it, it kind of stands out from from the, you know, everyday band that you would go and see down at your local pub on a on a Friday. I mean, we, we were fortunate enough um, when we were gigging with your band, Andy, to be able to play everything from pub through to kind of, you know, big uh, kind of uh, audience gigs, which is which is brilliant, and that's because you know you'd created that band identity, and it was it was as much about putting on a show, um, and with all the lighting set up, with all the kind of stage presence, and you know to the to the outfits and everything like that. It was all thought through so that people knew when they went to a Roadrunner show, they knew what they were getting. They weren't just getting a bunch of guys turning up in their, in their jeans and t-shirts on a, on a Friday night to play through a few, you know, tried and tested covers. It was, it was, it was a proper, you know, show. I think, I think that one of the main things from the start, and I think that's true with definitely our final lineup and with Bob and some of the guys throughout, not everyone, but it was never about money. I didn't do the band to make some money. I did the band because I wanted to, perform music uh, you know I want to be immersed wanted to be immersed in it and loved it and it was it's never ever been about the money I remember Bob saying to me at the start you know we'd be lucky if we could get you need to do free gigs then it was if we get 50 quid you know for the night that's a bonus and that he said you know that's always think of it like that any anything any money is beer money and it's a bonus and, and the clothing interesting you said that I was trying to remember when we changed to the black and whites it was um, long. It was. It was about. It was about two thousand and eight. Pretty certain yeah. about that. Yeah, and and that made a real difference as well, Kieran. As you said, it wasn't just guys turning up in jeans and t shirt. Um, and it gave us. It helped strengthen our identity. Yeah, I mean, we did the. Do you remember the recording we did in two thousand and eight, where we we brought out like a demo album, didn't we? That we got produced pretty well, and we got photos done up at that kind of charity gig that we did in. Dorking kind of way. So that was 2008 and we were 
that's when we started dressing up in the black and whites, you know, proper kind of smart every gig. And that lasted all the way through, didn't it? Right until the very end, we always did the gig dressed up fully in suits, hats, sunglasses. And that, that, that adds so much to it. You wouldn't think that, you know, you're in a band, it's just the music. But no, it's the presentation. It's the whole thing. That's, that's something that's been important from the start. So sorry to interrupt this super interesting conversation. However, if you've made it this far, you should probably subscribe to the Guitar Smarts podcast. You can do that in your favourite podcast app. Go and do that now and then come back to the show. Let's get back to it. So you've just started this band back when you're 16, 17. What were the rehearsals like? Was it chaos? Chaos. (laughs) (laughs) It was guitarist, you you know, the old saying, turn that fecking game down. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, every, Every guitarist wanted to be louder than the rest of the band. The drummer was doing flashes and showing off and... And then there was, to be honest, there was Bob just, you know, he was so, he was so key to it in the early stages, this band, because he really sort of helped, he mentored me and really kept it going because it was, it was chaos and, you know, there's me trying to control it all. Um, and he was very the sort of patient one and trying to reason with people. Um, there was a lot of egos, musician egos in there, um, but there was never any, uh, we still just wanted to play music. Um, I think the kind of feeling from rehearsals from I remember was everyone just wanted to play the song and bash through and it was it was very much there was no organization you know at the start Bob quickly put that into place by saying to me you need to send out details of when the rehearsal is every a week in advance and put out a plan for what rehearsal will be so everyone knows but at that age you know even myself I just want to sing the song and so the guitarist just wants to play it and so it was awful you know no one really rehearsed no one rehearsed outside of rehearsal for themselves and it was just we just made a lot of noise we had a lot of fun yeah it was just I remember the booming the sound I mean it was free at that time we couldn't afford to pay for somewhere but it was it was just one big sound because of the acoustics. Yeah, I think I have rehearsed there once for a Christmas gig with you, actually, years ago. You got a rehearsal there to go over Christmas songs. And I remember it just being just a cacophony of noise in there. <laughs> it's like they had a, a reverb that lasted about 25 seconds. You know, you play anything, you know, the snare drum just goes... Just as soon as you hit it, like white noise. When you're young, when you're young, you've got nowhere to rehearse. It's it's free. It's on your doorstep. It it was perfect, and it was the makings of the you know of Roadrunner, uh, how it all started off. And when we started, when I started rehearsing with Roadrunner, it was you you were so organised. You know, you had the set list with you. You, We'd, as you'd said, you'd already sent out an email or a text message saying what we were going to rehearse from the set list what order so it kind of like you had a we were turning up to rehearsal with a plan we knew what we were doing and you kind of get down to work then rather than just going what should we play should we play this as a plan which means you've got an end product you know you want to get to during the rehearsal and i think that's so important because rehearsal isn't just a time to get together and play is it you are you're refining something so you have to have a plan you have to have some organization and it always fell on you to do that yeah and it you know, it was made easier by you guys who, um, you know, did the work in your own time before coming to rehearsal. I remember, you know, there was a few times when perhaps we hadn't done all done that. I was guilty as well. And I remember you actually, Matt, made a point at one time saying, come on, guys, we should be learning this, coming to rehearsal, having learned it, you know, so let's mm. all try and do it as a team. I remember, yeah. I still remember you saying that to me because I think you were frustrated one evening that we'd kind of wasted a rehearsal. And it, and it was because quite rightly, we were all putting so much time into it. And, and, you know, I think we had an important gig coming up, but it was, you guys put in, it made it so easy because when we got to the point, didn't we, Kieran, you remember we, we, we only ended up rehearsing new material. That's how, and, and this is kind of at the start, if you think about it, if you put in the hard work and graph at the start and then you're gigging regularly, we only ever rehearsed in the end for new material or if, let's be honest, if we had a really car crash gig, which very, I think it didn't happen often at all, but, you know, we were unhappy about maybe a few songs. We then got together and we we talked about it and then we ironed out those creases. But that's a testament down to, to you guys. Well, I think it's I think it's what you describe, which is this kind of band ethos right now. I mean, 
<clears throat> we've all been in different bands and sometimes you're in bands which are just 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 for fun right and if you get a few gigs then that's great you know um especially when you're in your kind of younger years and you're going through college bands and and just you know even doing originals bands you you, you know it's all about experimentation and, and and learning how to play with other musicians but now what we're talking about is a regularly gigging uh, kind of semi-professional band, right? Of of people who it isn't their day job. That we're not professional musicians. We've all got other day jobs. But every weekend, we'd like to get out there with the band and gig. So it means, like, when you're having rehearsal time and things like that, that's people's evenings and and kind of time that they're giving up to get songs to work or to gel, so that you can make the next gig really, you know, impactful and keep the material fresh or play a certain song that, that, the, that the kind of clients requested. So it, it becomes then about a mutual trust thing and like working in a team to make sure that there isn't a weak link or that you're putting in as much effort so you're not letting the rest of the team down. And that's that was instilled. And I remember like Matt, you've just said, <clears throat> I've been in loads of bands before I joined Roadrunner and, and proper gigging bands. But I remember being really pleasantly surprised and delighted at how much that work ethic was there and Andy how you kind of set the set the tone for that um, and yes there were good rehearsals and bad rehearsals but overall it wasn't a, a mentality of look you know we've got to we've got to put the work in we've got to get the songs right and and we've got to put on a good show and thankfully we got that to a point where as you say then we would pull together rehearsals just if we maybe had a a debt musician coming in for a little period of time to cover one of us for holiday or we were learning a really important song for a bride and groom that we wanted to nail but i remember sometimes that we would just learn some songs and then try them at gigs because we'd got to that level where we could do that but that doesn't happen naturally that requires that kind of band leader to set that ethos and that mindset and you know, it's only now looking back on the amount of time that you must have put in, you know, doing all the communication with the band, getting everything sorted, getting everyone in that right frame of mind that it then becomes like a habitual way of working. But I think, you know, it was it was time and effort well spent in the beginning to set that kind of work ethic for the band. Yeah, definitely. I think it got, like you said, Andy, it got easier going on over time as we were only rehearsing new material and it became easy to get new material into the set didn't it because actually a number of things happened we came we became better as a band at selecting stuff that would suit us well you know that would be a great thing for us to do we know it would fit into the set you know we know we can do it and then it became easy to get it down and you know something that is important like you said at rehearsals is learning the song beforehand because when you are rehearsing you just want to be working on the details you know you want to be doing the beginning and the end, you know, how do we start it and how do we finish the song? Are there any details we want to do? Who's doing solos? And learning the song shouldn't be something you do in rehearsals. It's learning the thing you're going to perform that you do in rehearsal. You know the song, you're just refining it to how you want to fit it into the set. It's so important, I think, to, to remember rehearsal is this work time for refining your set. And actually, the set list is the next topic. How did you go about choosing... Back in the early days, how did you go about choosing a set of songs and how is that different to later on in Roadrunner's life when, you know, you were more organised and we had it down? So again, it's going back, you know, I, I never knew any of this. You know, this was down to Bob again. Him, He did the set list to start off with with me. You know, he, he did them though. You know, I'd present them, but he would be doing them with me. And he was all very much on time, you know, find out well, how long have we got? What's the typical set? And I know we'll probably come on to that in a bit. Uh, my uh, <laughs> my set set lists are known to go on sometimes. His at the time, so he he would you know okay we're doing a forty five minute set, so we'll do. He said you know you've got to have, um, we'll, you've got to roughly guess you know you know you should know roughly what each song to how long it takes. Um, add it all up, make sure you're not going over and make sure you have a, f- a handful of numbers in case they want an encore at the end. And it was pretty very basic and straightforward. I wouldn't say there was any detailed looking at the type of song and stuff. I, I can't remember. I mean, I think that at the end, it was generally at the end, obviously, things that people are warmed up and are dancing and you want dance, your dancier stuff at the end and maybe a mid, some slow stuff, sort of mid-range stuff sort of placed sort of in between. And then as that developed, I, I, I mean, I really was... I used to love, I mean, a set list on the train, commute back from work on the train for every gig. I used to love playing around with them, you know, bringing in the new numbers. You, 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 with us, 
you know, I think an, another thing that made us different was we, we started doing intros, didn't we, for Gigs Guys? Do you remember? Yeah. We sort of had background, um, we did um, um, Manish Boy. Yeah, there was always three or four songs which were the, we knew we were going on after kind of thing. Yeah, you and know. that... And that came from, I mean, look, this is quite sad, but this came from, you know, this came from a bit of me, my, the dream, which was never going to happen of, you know, performing on the stage at the O2. And, you know, we were going to see all these bands. I don't think I've ever shared this with you, but all the, all these bands that we go and see, they have their own playlists playing before yeah. they go on stage, don't they? And yeah. they always have the same sort build up to when they come on stage. And I wanted us to build this intro into Roadrun, this, this kind of anticipation that people knew, hang on, that's, that's the second song before they come on, if they're coming on soon. And, and then we did this jam, didn't we? Around the intro to the gig, which just just was fun and got us all warmed up um and then it was a case of i wanted us to to have a bang you know give me some loving has, has been our opening number pretty much for years and years and years as long as i can remember right back to the start give me some loving has, has been the the number that's kicked off roadrunner gigs it was you know we are here in your face uh and then you know we sort of a bit of a bit of you know a bit of your howling wolf we drop it down a bit uh and then you know maybe a couple of slow blues then we we build it a little bit just before just before the break you know you start building but you don't go too crazy um and then obviously what became a a, a sort of moment in the first set was when purple rain really took off and that's all people wanted to hear we worked that into the last number of the first set and that was because we obviously had then CDs that we were then selling. So yes. we knew that that's the song that everyone wanted the CD for. So let's put it before the break. So that's when we then sell on to that. And then we, you know, so there's a lot of thinking like that going on, not just also about the songs. And then it was a case of second set. Okay, everyone's back They're you know, excited for more. So we want to go fairly high tempo to start off with, but we don't, we're all equally don't want to knacker ourselves out. So, you know, sort of quite tempo again, maybe a little dip, a couple of favourites in the middle. And then pretty much, I mean, after about five numbers into the second set you're pretty much full pelt for us to the end and then our encores were what i mean apologies where is the end (laughs) the end the end never never came for i know you guys sometimes are begging it to stop i mean my 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 feeling around it all was we love we own we own we did it for the music we love we, we we love seeing everyone dancing and going crazy and all you know Pubs, I always had this conversation with pubs. Yes, they're paying us for the standard set, two 45 minutes and a 15 minute break or two one hours. Mm. Fine, that's what I agree with them. But I always say to them, and we we always played on. We play an hour and a half first set, hour and a half second set, if the crowd wanted it. And we just did it for the love of it. And I always made sure we had enough numbers. Um, and we just went on and on and on. And I and some of the, some know, of the private gigs, yeah, some of the private gigs yeah. where there wasn't that kind of like live music curfew. I, I remember going on for for plenty of time, and I remember on quite a few instances because because we were enjoying ourselves and we'd probably played for a couple of hours by then way over what we've been allocated and you know we had we had the clients kind of saying we'll pay you more if you play for more and we were just like don't worry you don't need to pay us we'll just keep playing yeah, and we like playing. go on from the early hours <laughs> early hours yeah. of the morning uh, but um i i remember roadrunner being uh quite an interesting thing from a set list for me because i'd always uh, once i'd started getting into bands that were kind of disciplined and, and had that work ethic like like you have andy um, it was still bands that would run to a set list and they would build a set list as you're describing, you know, with the right kind of ups and downs and dynamics to kind of please an audience. But something which I now only kind of latterly appreciate because um, it was kind of quite, quite good fun as well was you had almost like a DJ mentality to the set list, which is, it is a framework. And yes, there'll be certain songs that we know we're going to finish a set with, or there are certain songs that we know we're going to open a set with, but you would always be very keen, irrespective of what type of gig it was to read the audience and anticipate their mood and, and what kind of particular genre they were after or what kind of uh, tempo they were after. And so it was not unusual. In fact, I think it was completely common for us to, 
to to look to you towards the last kind of chorus of any given song to kind of figure out what was going to be the next song because nine times out of ten it probably wasn't what was on the set list in front of you because you and, and and you know I remember thinking for for a while I was like this is this is mad I mean because from from a guitarist point of view right uh, very selfishly because that's how obviously I look at the world it's like well I need to know if I've got the right guitar if I've got the right settings if I've got all of this lined up but you soon got used to it and you appreciated the beauty of what you were doing which was actually the most important thing which was giving the audience what they needed when they needed it and, and that meant if we had to pull a, a song from the you know three quarters of the way through the second set and drop it into the middle of the first set we all had to be prepared to do that at a drop of a hat and not take a, an inordinate yeah. amount of time to get ready to play that song which was which was and I, and I, always, I, I, I maintain that the only waste of, waste of energy that Andy ever expelled on any gig was gaffer taping up the set lists behind the speakers because <laughs> <laughs> Because after three songs, it was all pointless information. <laughs> well, we knew but we were probably going to play all of those songs. Yeah, yeah. but, but, but not also, necessarily in that order. Yeah. Exactly. But to be fair, and to, to Andy's credit, whatever change she made, it was always like, yeah, that makes complete sense. Absolutely. You know, if these guys, you know, if, if you've got a dancier number in the first set and actually it just happens that nobody's up dancing yet, then sometimes you'd say, right, let's save that for later on. Because if they're all up dancing later and sooner, if they're getting drunker later on or whatever, then it'd be good to have that in the pocket. You were very good at that off-the-cuff organisation of what the band's going to play on the night. And actually also, you were also very good at being able to extend or you know contract the length of a song at any given time. If you, you, know, if you wanted to get more out of a song because everyone was dancing, you were very, you know, we, we knew how to follow you. You were very good at being. Well, that's you know, Yeah, exactly, yeah. Hands go, up around the again, go around again, Go around Yeah, so, it, you know, there's, there's a there's a hand-in-hand partnership, isn't there, in, the, in, in creating an organised set list but being flexible on the night. And that's something that, you know, you, 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 know, you really developed beautifully with, with Roadrunner, I always thought. So we're getting into this kind of stagecraft and like following the singer type mentality, aren't we? Really, which is, you know, you're a, we're we were a rehearsed band, we were there, but we were there under kind of Andy's direction to make sure that we knew what he wanted as us as a band to be doing next, because he was reading the audience and trying to figure out what they they wanted next, and it, and it goes back to that mentality of of kind of put, putting on a show, really, and that that Andy is where I think you really came into your fore because you were never one of those front men uh, and aren't one of those uh, front men that just stands there in front of a mic looking down at his, his shoes or, or, or gazing across at, at the other musicians. You were all about audience participation and engagement and indeed often active engagement where audience members would be up on stage joining us for numbers and, and you know, decked out as, as members of the Blues Brothers as well. So where does that come from? <laughs> well, when I, and I go, so I'm just going to add in here, I remember the first gig do you remember that gig we did up in London for, by Greenwich, Greenwich for a wedding? The wedding. Greenwich, yeah. That was the first gig, and you know what I'm going to say? That's the first gig you ever had a wireless microphone, and it was yeah. like seeing an animal being released back into the wild after a life of captivity. You were out, you were gone. We didn't know where you were half the night because you were like, this is wireless, how far can I go? And you were all over the venue at people's tables singing to them. It was incredible. And I think that, you know, being like Karen said, you know, that that being that front man where that mentality comes from that's really something that took the band up to another level i i remember that moment as being the it sort of it took us yeah completely uh, up another level and uh, you know i just don't know apart from the professional sort of function bands that are around that do it you know as a pub band and social gig band you know and no one does it it's just not out there and um you know yeah, I had so much fun and it really lifted, I think, our set. You know, I've never claimed to be the greatest singer out there, but I like to think I, I, I entertain as being a, a, a front man. And um, I love it, involving people. I'm trying to remember, I couldn't remember when we first got people up to do Mustang Sally with the hats and the shades. But again, you know, that was a, a thing we were known for. So tell us about that, actually, just just so if anyone who's listening understands what you used to do. Right. That, this was a, you know, we talk about Purple Rain being a short piece of our set, ending the first set on that, and people loved it. But that was another important one, Mustang Sally, because of what you did. So tell us what it is so, you did. 
So we were obviously dressed up like the Blues Brothers in black and white suits with uh, the trilbies and the, sh and the shades. And um, for Mustang Sally, we'd, we'd go and get um, some um, ladies from the audience up um, to do the um, Ride Sally rides and we'd get them decked out in their shades and trilbies. We, I invested, I think I was... The local party party shop favourite customer getting trilbies and shades in and then we'd deck them out and they'd sing the chorus and they'd be up there with a the mic because when, you, when you've had a few drinks and when you see a live band that you like you want to be up, whether you, if, if you like music you want to be up there you want to be up there with them sharing in the enjoyment and, and that's what we did we got them up there and became it was a a Mustang Sally sort of three minute turned into what was the longest about a 20 minute one we, I think we, we did yeah we'd easily done some that was you know 15 minutes long probably a little bit too long because you'd um, introduce because you might spend a couple of minutes going round out of the pub on the mic saying do you want to come and get up and, it'd be, and then you'd get you, you know it doesn't matter sometimes the pub would be empty and you'd still manage to find a few people and get them up yeah you know the gift of the gab didn't you to persuade them and then you'd go and introduce them. Where are you from? And then, you know, we'd the, the make blind a lot date of noise. introductions. Yeah, yeah. that's it. <laughs> it became so like a game show, I used to think. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It did become like a game show. And But sometimes we'd be 10 minutes in before we started the song. Because this was... And that's not a criticism. That's because this was part of the set. This was part of well, something different we did. Yeah, it was, you know... But the thing is... You know, those people, if, if somebody who you'd managed to get up was with 10 people, those 10 people would come up and watch them from the front and be taking photos. And, you know, then you've got 10, 10 20 people sharing on Facebook these videos of their friends up with the band singing. And it, it wasn't just a performance thing as well. It was actually you probably unwittingly a really great kind of marketing ploy as well for the band, wasn't it? We did something different. It was. And then we obviously, you know, occasionally we'd give away, if it was a wedding, we'd, we'd give away, let them keep the trilby and the shades as a nice little keepsake. And that was another little bonus thing. Um, and, you know, as well as the roving mic, which definitely was a changing point for us, you know, going back right to the beginning again, I remember Bob saying to me, um, you need to talk to the audience, Andy. You can't just stand there. I remember our first gig. You can't just stand there and, and sing. You, you need to interact with them. They've come to see a, a band, not just a band, a show. And it was his words from there, you know. I was terrified. I remember the first... Our first gig was um, the Alton College Battle of the Bands in Headley, near Alton. And... Um, Oh, it was, I was in front of all my friends and I, I was just so, I remember being shaking and just, I couldn't go on, but I did. And it, you know, once you do, the more you do, the easier it gets. And then our first pub gig was for a hundred pounds at the railway Inn in Winchester. I remember again, I was terrified and he said, you, you've got to talk to them. And I was like, well, say what? And he said, just, just talk to them, talk to them about the song. Talk to them about your day. Just talk to them. So you've got him to blame for me now not being able to shut up and, and you guys occasionally telling me, Andy, Andy, get on with it. Next song, next song. Um, obviously, I've gone from being a very shy, retiring type to um, completely the opposite now. But um, again, it's engagement with the audience, you know, having a laugh, having a joke. It could, t it could, turn, a, it could turn a very average gig. <clears throat> not that we've ever, re you know, had really average gigs, but it, it, but it could turn what would be a, a very predictable gig into something completely unexpected. And it was, it was that ability for you to, I mean, because as, as guitarists, right, <laughs> you know, the, the prospect of playing Mustang Sally is, is, is not a particularly appealing one when you've gigged it for like decades already, right? So it's the last song that you necessarily want to play. But the way in which you would engage the audience and get a, a shy and retiring crowd to all of a sudden be part of the show, then to be dressed up as part of the show, then to be singing, and then for all their friends to be stood up taking pictures of them on the dance floor. And then that song would then segue into another series of other dance, blues, bass kind of uh, numbers that would keep that audience up. It, w it was a turning point in a gig, which takes an incredible amount of courage as a front man, you know, to take that song and uh, a kind of, you know, uh, even sometimes cynical audience and turn it into a packed dance floor with everyone interacting, taking pictures and going, that was brilliant. That was that was a, a fantastic show. 
and all we've done is played Mustang Sally. It's what you wrapped around that song that made it that made it quite you know a, a really interesting prospect for an audience and made it actually fun for us as musicians who had no desire to really play that song ever again. But we would be in fits of laughter. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. you know, the amount of times me and Matt would just be in tears of laughter just because of the just, audience yeah. and the way in which they were responding to it. It was brilliant. Exactly. It was brilliant. <laughs> It was it was a it was always a highlight of the night. That kind of bled into other areas of the set as well, didn't it? You would get people singing along with with other songs as well, and that kind of meant that you were united with the audience for the gig. And there were always better gigs when you, the audience felt involved and kind of you know they were part of the band almost. Connecting with the audience is the best thing you can do, I think, if you want success as as a band as a musician. You can't just get up and just play and expect people to like it. You have to involve them. Sound engineering is something else that, that we've put on the list for, you know, kind of making a successful performance, a successful act. Sound engineering is, is important. It's a boring topic, right, because you want to get up and you want to play music, but you've got to, you know, if you, how many gigs have you guys been to where the bands just sounded terrible, even if they weren't actually, you know, if they weren't bad musicians? We've all been to a few. How, yeah, how plenty, did you? Plenty. I've seen. I've seen professional bands where the sound was just ruined by by the by the sound engineer, yeah. not, the, not the musicianship. Uh, exactly, know. exactly. And it's important. And what was it like early on for you, Andy? What was your kind of PA system like and your setup first day? So the PA system. It was Bob's PA from his other band. A PV, I think, a PV PA system. It was very. I mean, I I didn't know. Still to this day, I still don't know. It won't be surprising, Matt. Um, <laughs> You know, with me and sound engineering, I mean, I think I'm better than I was. Um, but in the early days, I didn't have anything to do with it, to be honest. Um, Bob would set it up. He he knew his, he knew kind of how to set it up. But that really didn't matter because at the end of the day, we just made too much noise. And every gig we played, we were told within about five minutes that we were too loud and to turn it down. And that became kind of a pattern that just went on and on. And of course, we were, I was thinking, well it's live music you've booked a band don't keep telling us but in fairness to those many landlords in the early days of roadrunner we definitely were too loud yeah awful um you know we, it was, we were young we were inexperienced things really changed well when you came on to be honest when you came on board matt i mean ken ken had some really good knowledge as well ken was brilliant um because we were using i think his pa at one point and he had a really good ear for the, the sound as well and could sort of get the levels right but when you came on mate with your obviously experience through your job and through your passion of it all we just went to a new level and i think it's also though combined with having the right equipment and for me you did everything you could with the equipment we had at a certain point. But then for me, the another taking it to the next level was when we brought the new speakers and the new mixer that we all chipped in. Do you remember the amazing Alan and Heath mixer? Yeah. yeah and absolutely. I mean, maybe you can tell us, you, you know, I want to hand over to you really now and tell us about what a difference that made. Cause I remember the first gig and we just looked at each other as if to how have we been playing with all that other gear? <laughs> Since, well, you, and now we've, Got this. Yeah, it, it is, that's the thing. It, having that having that mixing desk gave us just control. That's that's the thing it gave us back. You know, I mean, if you've got... I mean, when I joined Roadrunner, we, it wasn't a bad PA that we had, but then again, we didn't have much demand on the PA because it was only the mics for singing that we were putting through the PA. You know, we didn't have a keys player, so we didn't ha need to have a PA for the keys as well, and then they, they didn't need monitoring. We had a pretty simple setup of just a, a basic six or maybe four channel mixing desk that you had, you know, and some decent speakers and an amp. And and the band was done through their own amplification, right? You know, so Kieran and I and Ken, our amps were loud enough that we didn't need to put them through the PA. And obviously Terry, well, you know, you could hear him from Sheffield on the drums, you know. Yeah, so we didn't have much of a demand. It was later on, wasn't it, when uh, we had a, a requirement of a PA change that we needed better monitoring because we wanted it to be, we actually wanted it to be a bit quieter on stage, but we still wanted to be loud up front, right? Because of various reasons, you know, your hearing and, and, and just being comfortable on stage and being more professional for those larger gigs. So... That big mixing desk allowed us to have more control over that. We could have different monitoring mixes, but crucially, we could affect the sound more. We could 
EQ things better. It had a better equalization for the channels. It had better mixing capability. And and actually, you know, for people who don't know, some mixing desks like guitar amps inherently have their own sound. And a good quality mixing desk gives you a better, cleaner signal a lot of the time. We had better speakers then as well, didn't we? We had those Mackie um, speakers, which were superb, and they were powered so we didn't have to carry an amp. So, yeah, we, we made a good investment in the band to have better kit, but effectively what it gave us was just more control. And that does help you to sound better. It was actually easier to set up the PA with a more complicated system than it was with a cheaper system because you felt you were battling with the cheaper system to get it sounding good. Whereas the nice mixing desk, it just sounded great. It was easy to get a good sound out of. But it's so important to have that. And, and I remember as well, I'm sure you do, after we changed the PA system to that, we did start getting more comments from people about it sounding, you sound so balanced. I remember hearing that quite a lot. Not louder or, or anything like that. People would say, it's just really great, clear sound. You know, you guys sound great. I, th- I think we all, all also, I think, I think it improved our playing and how tight we were on songs because we could hear each other clearer i know i could hear because i could hear my my voice a lot easier and clearer with better monitors and just generally with with the amplification i wasn't pushing it as much which meant i didn't lose my voice as quickly and um and i I, yeah the whole thing just blended a lot a lot a lot better we spoke a little bit earlier on about presentation didn't we about changing to you know, being smart, wearing our suits and, and looking good. What was it like for you in the early days, Andy, when you were kind of setting up the band in a venue? You had the PA, but what about lighting, positioning, set, you know, where, where you put things? Was that something you learned as well early on? So we, um, it was, I mean, it was, yeah, it was jeans and T-shirt and uh, no lighting, uh, no lighting. And so I, I can't even remember when I first thought about lighting. Again, I think it was really just after you joined Matt I think mm. we started to invest in lights um and I think some of just... it was Ken's as well right that was it yeah Ken had a lot of stuff yeah. from his bands and he he let's borrow some yeah. of that and then we started buying more and more and before you knew it we were like a big light show as well which but again it helped you know it was really good with the presentation but um early days now there was no lights um it was just basic turn up plug in play and um <laughs> I just had this memory come back. Do you remember when we did that? We did a charity gig. Kieran, I think this was just before, probably the year before you joined, we did this charity gig. And it was the first gig we ever did, Andy, where we had the lights on a tea bar. Do you remember that? This was Dawkin. Dawkin. The, the black tie. The black tie Where event. we got the great pictures, but it no was one a charity knows what event actually happened for, before uh, the pictures. That's it. It was a charity event done on behalf of a family who'd, I think, lost their dad. And they'd had this big event, money money raising thing throughout the year, and this was the culmination. And the beginning of the event was, um, I think it was pipers, like a pipers, pipers. That was it, bagpipers coming in, and we heard them coming down. And I turned behind me, and all of a sudden the T bar was falling over. Do you remember that? And it hit almost hit. It missed it, Terry by it like missed Terry a and, nearly, and missed his drum kit. And it came it came down, and I think it just kind of fell on a few things, so it didn't break. The lights were still okay, but just as these pipers were coming in, anybody following the pipers, the last thing they would have seen was us just quickly pushing this teapot back up into place. Because otherwise, if we weren't there on stage waiting for them to come in, they would have just come into this mess of smashed stuff probably on the floor but man that was that was a funny memory but that was a good good investment because that was that t-bar meant that setting up lights on the gig was a breeze wasn't it you just stick that t-bar up in the corner hang four lights on it power them all up point them where you want them and you've got this great little compact lighting maker and just remember to gaffer tape the legs down to the floor (laughs) (laughs) yeah just 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 distribute the weight evenly and then make sure that the legs are spread out wide enough i think that was inexperience wasn't it didn't didn't that bore the um yeah it was definitely an experience because i made sure the legs were were definitely lower to support the weight and then after that i got the hazard tape out and hazard taped all the way around yeah. the legs you were very extra. good at that you were very good at that because you put the hazard tape out on every gig i think in front of the stage but actually it actually made it look more like a stage then rather than four or five people crammed into the corner of a pub somewhere there's benefits isn't there to good presentation you'll stick out from the crowd more i think you'll also help to guarantee getting more gigs 
you know, if you stick out from the crowd a little bit and you look better, you take more care and attention to set yourselves up at the beginning of a gig, people are going to ask you back. You're going to be able to ask for more money as well if that's important, but obviously, like you said, it was never for us. Yeah, with um, with it was interesting because we never really marketed ourselves as a wedding band. We didn't go. We were a pub band first and foremost, and then we did a few social clubs. And our kind of thinking on it, you know, if if people came up to us after seeing us in a pub and wanted us to play at their wedding or birthday, then great, we'd absolutely do it. Um, and that's how actually we got all our wedding gigs. And we ended up doing, I don't know, what was it? Maybe a couple of year, maybe, you know, roughly. We ended up doing a couple of year, yeah. A couple of year. And it, we do them, we, we, lo- we love doing them, I think because it wasn't as regular. Um, but the key thing was for me was the material we were doing wasn't typical wedding material. And so I didn't want to push us out there as a wedding band because we're not a wedding band. And we, you know, there's a lot of time, although, yes, you get more money um, for us because it wasn't about the money. There's a lot of time spent standing around five hours just, you know, once you're set up um, and you can have a great gig and it's a great captive audience. Um, But for us, it just wasn't right. Um, So I I hope, you know. I hope you guys thought we had a right. We had a good balance. Yeah, I do. I do definitely. And actually, there was. I think there was one occasion where we got asked to do a song for a wedding, and I think we. I think it was Valerie, wasn't it? That's how Valerie got into the set, and we said we'd do it, but we do it our way, you know, because it's it, it doesn't necessarily fit in. The, not because we're kind of not we got a road runner. It's because we wanted it to fit in with what else we could play, and. That that was an important part when we realised we could we could make other songs fit into our set and still please more people. And it's good that you said marketing, right? Because that's the next thing. That's the next thing on the list, which is merchandise and marketing. It's I, I don't think it's out of, and we prove this in Roldan. It's not out of the realms of possibility for even just a basic pub band to have merchandise to sell or you know to market themselves more professionally. And that's something that you did really well with Roldan. You know, you you had CDs that were professionally made. You know, we did proper photos and album covers and got them printed properly. And we had sometimes we'd even sell the hats and the glasses at gigs, um, and that would help to fund other merchandise. And what did you have a demo of the band early on? In yeah, so we did um, early on. The first lineup was, um, it was Simon Haycock, uh, Alex White on the guitar, Alex Wybrew on um, drums, Bob on bass, and, and me. And we did a demo in um, a, gar- a local Basingstoke sound engineer's um, garage, double garage. I think it was a garage with mattresses on the on the walls to act as soundproofing. And he, I think he had a a, a, a very basic setup, but it was it was brilliant what he did. Um, we, yeah, it was a cassette tape and it was three numbers and it was Saturday night, which is George, George on the Satellite, num- uh, George on the satellite number, um, Tore Down, Freddie King. Um, and that's that's interesting because obviously that completely followed us through. That was in the set um, right to the last day, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and Treat Her Right covered um, by uh, The Commitments and Treat Her Right followed us through to several lineups. Um, but it was, I, I've still got a copy and we're again, marketing. It's all about, you know, we, we could have just put it on a cassette tape, just taking it around, but we had a proper inlay done. We had the, um, I think we ripped off a good old Disney, uh, road runner, the road runner on it just for the demo of pictures of ourselves. And we all, we all inside, we had little profiles of each of us. And you know how on the road runner cartoon, they have it in Latin, what road runner is and everything. So, you know, I think the bass player was Bob, you know, Bob, Bob Francis bassist brackets, um, pluckiest stringiest or something, you know, <laughs> um, just having a bit of fun. Um, so yeah, that was the first ever demo. And then on from that, we got, um, and to this day, Terry still, you know, when we split Terry. So I got a friend, um, Frank Heritage, who um, kindly, he um, was a graphic designer and he um, he got one of his uh, business people to do the Roadrunner drum skin. You know, the, the Roadrunner with the Trilby hat and the shades, which, because obviously we had an issue with copyright with the Disney going forward for posters, we couldn't use any of the Disney stuff. So we had to think, we were thinking about things like that as well. And um, we got, um, Frank did up, Frank's colleague did this amazing um, roadrunner drawing, cartoon-like, not from Disney, completely our own roadrunner with a trilby and shades. And um, we had it on um, uh, Terry's drum skin. We had it on all our posters. So when we dropped them off at venues, um, it was... 
you know, it was brilliant. That is so important, I think. Merchandise, marketing, you know, that, that, does, that does kind of help you to get more gigs, without a doubt. From then, we did, we did posters, and the posters sort of developed into colour posters. Then we then had business cards, um, which we'd take to gigs and started just leaving them on tables before people were turning up. We also then did flyers, which was a big thing, um, little tiny little flyers, which would tell everyone the next sort of month's gigs so that when they saw us, if they liked us, they could come and follow us around. And we actually had people that were, come. it, it worked. You know, people were saying, we like this band, and they were looking at the flyer, right, I'm going to be here, they're going to be over my way or nearby next next month let's go and see them again rather than relying on them to check the website which obviously we would talk about through the gig check us out roadrunnerblues.com uh, the, the flyers they all work together to just just increasing um you know the the audience um and then obviously when it came to cds you know, we, we took it up a notch, didn't we? We we had we did professional photographs, props, you know. Do you remember the Cadillac shoot, Kieran? Yeah. You, you've done a brilliant video of that, uh, the making of, of the first album, Matt, which which is on the roadrunnerblues.com. Um, actually, no, the website is defunct now, but if you go to Roadrunner Blues on Facebook, um, the page is still there for the memories and um, it's a great video that you put together and it, it, it brings back great memories yeah, when definitely. Uh, we look at that. I remember um, I, one, of the, one of the cool things you sometimes did at gigs as well, this is actually a great way to grow your audience, is you would say sometimes to people at a gig, free roadrunner hat and glasses to the next person who likes our Facebook page. And then, you know, you'd look on there on your phone and you'd see that, you know, oh, somebody from, you know, Basingstoke, who's that? And they'd come over. But the point is you'd then have an extra 10, 15 likes on on Facebook and people would be, you know, you'd just grow on your audience a bit more. A few more people are following you. A few more people know when you're gigging and they'll come out again. And that was a great, you know, great little ways of just engaging people. And getting you know your listenership up, you know people following you, and and uh, you know, but it's so important, you know. Otherwise, people are not going to turn up to your gigs. And obviously, a pub that wants to book you, they want to know that you're going to bring people. And and I think you're right there. And with with the social media side of things, it was it was it wasn't really exploding at the time when we back in the days. But um, you know, now if you were starting up a band, you know, it's a fault you'd almost you want to uh, sort of um, delegate. The social media side to another person because it's a whole job it's and it's where where it's at for audience you know i we i'd occasionally put on stuff in between gigs so it wasn't just videos from gigs and stuff it was you know you're chatting to them about something that happened or the, the fact that you're putting the set list together and what numbers do you want to see at our next gig it's things like that i started doing to again you engaging them so people are saying well actually i'd really love that cover that you haven't played for so long can you put that on there and, and you yeah okay of course we can um so now it's it's so important let's let's wrap this up so we've got one more topic to to discuss which is about kind of uh, the business side of it because we had a we had an interesting way of managing the money that was made in the band right we had a kitty and i don't think anybody else i don't remember speaking to anybody else who ran a pub band who did this but when when did it become apparent to you when you were running bands or running roadrunner that you needed to manage the financial aspect of the band as well i've been thinking looking back and i can't actually remember when we made that change I think a lot of these changes have come, I think, when we became an established lineup. I think, you know, we've gone through so many lineups quite quickly or a year after a year. But I think probably when you, know, you came in, Matt, Kieran came in, I, I, I'm pretty sure things started to really sort of change then. And I think it was a case because we've been together, we started to get more more professional, more towards that end. As the, the, everything felt it was the right time to do this because we were talking about new kit and we were talking about this and we were talking about that. But I think the main, I think the start of it, I think it was just to pay to, it was just to pay for rehearsals to start off with. I think that's where it came from. I think the idea was we were at various rehearsal studios and it, well, hang on a minute. Why are we paying for this out of our own money when we're earning money gigging? I think that was my thinking behind it. So let's, let's, let's put some money aside and then it was a case for how much and i think you came out with a suggestion well, why don't we treat the kitty like a um an, an, another member of the band so if there was four of us gigging that week it would be money would be split between five people and the fifth would be the kitty and then we just um 
started putting it money in and occasionally if we, then we turned around I think when we started to get money from hats and trilbies and things like that we used to just throw that in as well and very quickly we built up a good amount um what's your what's your kind of recollection from it Kieran well it was it was brilliant it, it, it was brilliant because um you know we were in, we were all in a fortune position where we were working so it wasn't our day job and it was, wasn't our mainstream of income <clears throat> but we were we were all grateful that we were able to take out enough money from each gig in our pockets that would you know be a decent chunk of money to for, for the for the next week to you know beer tokens food whatever it was you know new guitar strings pay for your petrol all of that so so we never left the gig feeling oh i've just done a gig and i, and I haven't got any money from it but what it also allowed us was this financial freedom to to grow the band in the ways that we've been discussing over this this last kind of hour or so which is you know when we wanted to go into the studio and record a demo you know, you'd go, well, there's this much in the kitty. We could actually do that if we wanted to. Or, okay, we need to buy some more monitors because we, you know, tell the drummer wants to have his own monitor so he can hear himself a bit better and, and bring his overall volume down. So, well, look, let's see how much is in the kitty for that. So it, it gave us an incredible amount of financial freedom to grow the band um, professionally um, with things like the merchandise, with the recordings, with the new gear when we needed it, when stuff, you know, broke down as it invariably does or needed replacing. But what it also allowed us to do, which you were really good, uh, and this is probably why the band lasted for, for, for so many years, is we also used the kitty for social events and for stuff to kind of keep us together. Because I know a lot of bands through the years, you know, fall apart through disagreements and through people not kind of getting on outside of the gigs and things like that. But you always use the kitty money as well for us to have social nights out as a band when on the weekends where we weren't gigging to just spend time together and go out for a meal and go out for some drinks. And so it became a very tight knit unit. So that that kitty, although a very simple idea of siphoning off a bit of money from each gig, soon actually became a very healthy amount of money to keep the band kind of functionally running with the equipment it needed or when it needed to go into the studio. But it also kept the band socially going and kind of bonded everyone because it meant we could do social events together, which I think is a very smart thing to do just by siphoning off a bit of money from each from each gig it was a very 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 good way to to run a band and as matt said you know those things are often kind of neglected or, or not done and then people end up having to dip into their pockets and then that's when they go oh well this band is, is costing me more money than it's than it's worth and we never felt that way i think there's a really important thing that if you're going to do a kitty that then you must remember to keep an account of it and it, it, again run it professionally so what i was doing was every gig i'd send out an email afterwards saying what the split of the money went was and then i'd have a kitty total i don't you guys remember that yeah um, absolutely you'd so, itemize it wouldn't you fully yeah you know, showing what the kind of it's like a, a full breakdown of the band expenses yeah just say you know so we had this come in for the kitty but but uh, you know there was a throughout the, the band sort of career i, I happily bankrolled the bits and bobs if they needed doing in the background and then what i would do is take the money back from the kitty but this was all itemized it's the same with matt and kieran as well you know if you did things then then the kitty would pay you back um but you've got to be make sure that that's kept up to date because obviously you know it's a it ended up being quite a bit you know a good a good sum of money um so everyone needs to know where where it's being moved and, and where it's going to um and of course though that kitty money you know in the first place wouldn't be possible without um booking gigs you know i think just one one area which um just want to touch on very quickly is is how important it is to book to book to book gigs and get them and how to do them um booking gigs takes up the most time because um you know you're on the phone constantly phoning around the pubs asking them you know and, and they don't know you they, they only they're only taking you on your, your word that you're a good band. Obviously, they've got a demo. That helps. But even that, the number of times I'd phone, I could never get through to the landlord or the person that did the bookings. And they'd say, phone back in two hours. Or, yeah, he'll give you a ring. Or she'll give you a call back. And you wait. And and you never got that call back. Um, you only got those callbacks from the pubs that you ended up building up a relationship with and that you'd become a regular at. But um, all of my advice out there for people that are starting out is never take no for an answer, you know, and you're only going to get gigs if you keep going yourself. So when they say he'll call you back in tomorrow or whatever and they do doesn't, get on the phone again. Hi, it's me again. Sorry to bother you. But, you know, just really keen to play at your pub. You know, it's a great pub I hear. We want to come and bring on great music. Just keep going. Don't take no for an answer. Um, and eventually you'll get those gigs. And once one starts coming in, that's all you need because then you can say, well, we play at so-and-so down the 
the road and the pub doesn't want to miss out on that so they'll get you in as well the neighboring pub and then word spreads and they see that you're on every month at that pub well hang on a minute we're missing out here let's get roadrunner in so very 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 important to you know that's why you rehearse isn't it that's the whole point of doing what we do. We rehearse and we love music. We want to play to an audience. I mean, it got to, it got to the point where you were booked up uh, for the band like almost a year in advance then. We'd get together in January and you'd have like the, you'd, you'd do your January run of just ring arounds to the, to the pubs, as you said, which took a lot of work. But then you'd have the schedule mapped out for pretty much the rest of the year. And then the wedding gigs would slot in, the charity gigs would slot in, and then the function gigs would slot in on top of that. And I remember thinking, this is amazing. In January, we're kind of mapped out for the rest of the year. And I can plan the rest of my year around this. But that 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 didn't come without a tremendous amount of hard work and years of plugging away at that to then be able to book up a band a year in advance for all of the all of the gigs that we that we could accommodate doing. It was it was great. I mean, it got to the point, didn't it? It got to the point where, so we were pretty much done by Octo- end of October. End of October, we were fully booked for the next year. And it got to the point where we were having to then, towards the end of the of the band, the last couple of years, we were having to um, tell pubs that wanted us, you know, f- sort of every month or whatever, we were having to limit how many times we played at gigs at certain venues because we didn't want to play six or seven loads of times at the same venue over and over again. We wanted to try new, we had new venues coming to us saying, we want, we want to, we want you to come and play. And we were looking at our schedule going, well, we're fully booked because we're playing this pub 12 times or something. So then we started having to cut back and actually to work in these new venues. And that's a great problem to have. Absolutely. I guess it's only only hard to get gigs in pubs that you've never played at, and we never had that problem, did we? We never had to try and convince anyone that we'd already played at to have us back. You know, we were lucky. We People liked us and wanted us back. I think we are quite unusual. We've said this before between ourselves, and I might be wrong, but from friends that I've heard in other bands, for how long our lineup went for because of generally with music and everything, there are egos in bands, there are differences of opinion, people do fall out um, and lots of bands split. With us, I generally have to say I thoroughly enjoyed our time with you guys, with Terry, Ken and all the other guys that, you know, helped us out. Dave, um, Raphael, you know, um, Connor, McDonald. um, But we became more than bandmates. Um, I believe, I believe we became friends, you know, outside of the band, which really helped us. It wasn't all um, happy families all the time. I think I can remember probably two fallings out, but because we were so close, we just dealt with them and moved on. That's a sign of a really strong, sort of strong band. And I think it's testament to why we, why we lasted so long, to be honest. And I think why it was so, so from, you know, so upsetting when we had to call it, call it quits. Yeah, it was it was tough. It was good that it was all an amicable ending, though, wasn't it? We were all at a point in kind of our lives where we knew, you know, families starting, things like that, you know, careers maybe getting busier. That we knew it was a it was a safe time to knock it on the head rather than it petering out at some point and just being a pain. You know, we kind of went out on a high on a couple of really superb gigs. You know, but Graisley, I think Graisley was our last one, but the, the last pub gig was at Kestrel in Basingstoke, and that was just such a fantastic night. Well, anyway, thanks, Andy. It's been superb talking to you about that. Kieran, have you got any last things you wanted to, to say or ask Andy? I think it's been brilliant chatting to you, Andy. I mean, it's, um, as I said, uh, there'll be plenty of bands that we continue to play in and, and plenty of bands before before Roadrunner, but I think we all took something out of Roadrunner and learned from you in terms of what it means to organise and run and have a really strong work ethic in a band to build it from, you know, just being a, a kind of run-of-the-mill pop band into something that can, can put on a brilliant show uh, irrespective of the size of audience and, and venue so you know um, thanks for sharing with us today what what that kind of journey took and looked like from your perspective and uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll do a gig again in the in the future no problem it's been my pleasure <laughs> what's the last one last thing Andy right if you were to if somebody was coming to you now saying what well, I want to start a band right give me three three important things of advice that are going to help me what three things Let's pretend it's to you. It's 16-year-old Andy. Right, what are your three things you're going to tell Andy that are important? Listen to your elders. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, uh, Do it for the love of the music. 
not the money. Uh, and just enjoy it, because life's too short, especially at the moment. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Andy. Thanks, guys. Great to chat. Good luck with the podcast. Nice to speak to you. Cheers, mate. Another interesting conversation. Hope you enjoyed it. Come back for more next week. To make sure you don't miss it, subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast app so you never miss a show. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash guitar smarts. Like us on Instagram at guitar underscore smarts. Anyway, have a cracking week. Speak to you soon.